Just a few days ago, we sat in this church with dust on our foreheads. We had gathered here, flocked to this place to be able to hear those words, Remember that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. And those words spoke to us not only a reminder of our mortality, that we have one life to live, that our time is short and that eternity is long, and so we must make the right decision for God or not for God. But also, that since we are dust, we have so much potential in the hands of God. Because in the beginning, in that poetic rendering of the creation of the universe, we heard that God made man out of dust, out of the stuff of the earth. And if he could create man out of dust, he could recreate this man who is but dust. He can recreate those of us who have, in various ways, lost our dignity, forfeited it, forgotten it. And so today, we journey with this Jesus, this God-made man, in order to recreate us. And we go to the first place that he went to after his baptism. After his baptism in the Jordan, where he descended into the waters in order to sanctify them for us when we meet him there. He went straight into one of the realities that we hate the most. He went to temptation. We hate temptation. That even though we've turned to Christ, the devil still nips at our heels. The devil still whispers in our ears. He still wants us every single day to turn away from the Christ that we have chosen to lead our lives. We wish that redemption meant that we no longer have temptation, but instead redemption means that we're strengthened to be able to overcome temptation. And we're strengthened in that by Christ himself who not only went into the desert to give us an example, but also to remind us that when we are in the midst of temptation, we just don't, don't just imitate him from a distance, but we have him there present, accompanying us, giving us the grace that we need to overcome every single temptation. We see that Jesus went into the desert in order to overcome the devil who overcame our first parents in the garden. We see connections between the temptations that Christ suffered and those that Adam and Eve had and those that we have on a daily basis. And so we who are dust return to that book where dust was turned into man. And we read what God allows us to see from that first moment of temptation that has echoed on through unto every single temptation we've ever experienced so that finally today we can face temptation without fear, without this anger and bitterness toward the Lord that he allows us to be tempted, but instead with courage and confidence knowing that he has already won the victory. And in every single one of our temptations, we can lay claim to that victory. And so we read in the third chapter of Genesis, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here we see the root of every single temptation to turn from the Lord is doubt. The very first wedge that the ancient enemy, that serpent, 
placed in between the first, the first humans and God himself was doubt. Did God actually say? Can you trust him? Can you trust your relationship with him? Does he know you? Does he know what you really want? Does he love you? Will he take care of you? And you see how he twists what was originally freedom and makes them focus on prohibition. Because if we went back to the second chapter, we would know that God gave them all of creation, everything. He said, this is yours. This is my gift to you because I love you. I want you to be stewards of this. I want you to work with me to bring order into this, to give names to all of the creatures. I give you all this freedom, but to make you truly free, I have to give you the option of choosing against me. And so out of all the trees, there will be but one that I will ask you not to eat of, so that you have the option to reject me. Because that's what one who wants love has to provide. If he wants us to freely love him, he has to give us the opportunity to choose to not love him. And so he did. He gave them so much freedom, but the serpent twists it and says, wait, there was something he told you not to do? And so he says, did he actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You see there how clever he is. Because strictly speaking, yeah, they can't eat of any tree because there is one that they can't eat of. But the way he phrases it makes it seem like you can't eat of any of these trees. You pobrecitos, oh my gosh, you have such a hard life. What a mean God. And you see that that doubt starts to sneak its way in. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here we see that doubt has entered in. Why? Because she twists the words of God. Instead of calling upon God at that instant and saying, God, there's a serpent here, and and I I, I need you because he's starting to confuse me. Instead, she says, Well, what did God actually say? And she says correctly, yeah, we can eat of the trees of the garden. And then she says correctly, of this one we're not supposed to eat. But then doubt crept in because she starts looking at God and exaggerating the prohibition. She says we can't even touch it. God never said that. But the moment doubt comes in, the moment that he ceases being our loving father in whom we can trust... He starts to be this taskmaster who has these harsh rules. And then it extends. In our day, at least, the echoes of this first temptation are, well, can I really trust Scripture? I mean, it's so old and outdated. And the church, does the church really understand my situation? I mean, what do they know of my life? Do I really have to accept this teaching or that one? And it all starts with that wedge of doubt. Believing that God is not a loving father and the church is not a caring mother. But that instead God is a harsh taskmaster and the church is just out there to lay down the law. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. And you see, there's where what began with doubt finishes with pride. Ooh, wait, if I'm like God, I don't need God. If I can write my own rules, 
then I'll finally be truly free. If I can be the ultimate and only master of my own destiny, I'm going to be happy. We fall to that same temptation. To be so self-sufficient that we don't need God anymore. We're like God, in fact. We're little gods of our little worlds. And I'll borrow a line from Dr. Phil here and say, now how's that working out for you? Right? Usually when we write our own stories, we realize, I'm not a very good author, right? I didn't think this one through. I didn't expect this little twist and turn because other people are writing their own stories too. And turns out, I'm not the main character in theirs. And we have chaos. We have frustration, bitterness, anger. And we have a change of vision. And here we finally get to the meat of the connection between these temptations of the man and woman and the temptations of the new man, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And in between those two, every temptation we've ever faced. You see, once doubt entered into the woman's mind, she started shifting in her thinking of God, and then finally here, her vision shifts. And she sees the gifts of all creation, not as something beautiful for which to be thankful, but something limited and for which to be bitter. How dare God prohibit me from doing anything? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She starts to see the world not through the eyes of a beloved daughter of God, but through the eyes of that serpent. At that moment, everything else she despised and just the one thing that she was asked not to do was good for food, delightful to the eyes, and was to be desired to make one wise. How does this connect to our blessed Lord in that wilderness? Well, the devil starts where he always starts. He starts with doubt. What are his first words here? If you are the Son of God. Do you really believe in that identity? You have to prove it to me. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There we see the connection. What was the first thing that the woman saw in the tree? It was good for food. And there we see that the devil, he doesn't always go at us directly by some evil. No, he perverts a good. Food is a great good. It's a necessity. Our bodies have so many needs. And they have so many desires. And the devil, he he sneaks and slithers his way in there by having us focus on only our bodily needs and desires to the detriment of our souls. He takes the good that is perhaps food or comfort and he perverts it to become that highest good instead of one among many. He has us focus so much on the here and now, on time and space, that we forget about the thereafter, eternity, our souls which were made for eternity. And we end up focusing so much on just our bodies that our souls wither away. Then he moves to the second temptation. Then 
The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant and said to him, I shall give to you all this power and glory. Power and glory. Right? Some of us, we might not be tempted by the things of the flesh that much. We might say, like, no, 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 I'm very moderate in my desires and I just, anything of the flesh, I'm not really tempted there. Well, then there's the second level temptations. Temptation to power. To be able to be the one where the buck stops. People listen to me. I'm the one who takes control. I am the master of my own life. I have this position, this prestige. How often do we chase that? And it might not be in all of these um, spectacular ways. It might not be that we are seeking a position in work or in politics or whatever. What about in our family, in our friend group? What happens in our souls in that moment when somebody questions us? You questioned Almighty me? Oh, prepare to feel my wrath. What, you think that you're, you're right and I'm wrong? Are you serious right now? And then the glory. If not just the power, then we want the glory. We want to be recognized for how good we are. We want people to admire us. And all of that, in a sense, can be good, right? We should strive for excellence. We should strive to have a certain uh, position of responsibility for people so that we can serve them better. But here, too, the evil one twists something good and makes it something bad. When it's for me to be like God, or me to be a little God. Not in reference to him, but just the little God of my little world. And here we see the connection to Eve, that the tree that was good for food was delightful to the eyes. She was able to see this as the one glorious tree among all the other ones. Why is he keeping this from me? Does he know who I am? Look at how delightful this tree is. All those other ones, they don't look very good for me anymore. And what was the third thing that the tree was? It was desired to make one wise. Now here we surely, that's a good thing. Don't we want to be wise? But we see here that it's not this heavenly wisdom that is sought. Of us knowing our place in God's plan. Knowing our dignity in his eyes. Instead it's us being wise as in being on par with God. He's no longer a mystery. I've got him all figured out. He for me is no greater than a math problem. Right? And there the temptation we have is to be frustrated with God because we don't know what's coming next. We have a certain hatred for the unknown and the unexpected. We think that God, if he's good, needs to show me the entire roadmap of my life. He can't allow for surprises. He needs to let me in on every step of the plan. And in fact, he needs to move aside and give me the wheel because I need to be in control. There we have this temptation To have wisdom as seen as being wise like God. What was it that the tempter said? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. To not share in his wisdom, to humbly accept his plan, but to say, whoa, 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 God, where do you get off planning my life? No, 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 we're equals at this table. We want God to prove himself to us. We don't want to trust in him. We don't want to have faith and to have hope and to have love. We don't want to be dependent on him. Instead, we want him to prove that he will be good to us. We demand some kind of proof of it. Show me a sign. 
instead of saying, I trust you and I'm going to have faith in you. And there we see how this plays out in our Lord's temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Is God really that good? Well, then do this thing. Prove it. Tell God to prove that He loves you. And that echoes in our own lives. We basically say, God, I will trust you if my life starts going well. I will trust you if you show your love for me in this spectacular way. I have to test you first before I can trust you, instead of saying, I trust you because of the goodness I believe you have. And that's enough for me. Now, why does Lent begin with the temptations? Because Lent is hard. And we need to, at the very beginning, realize in every difficulty, we're not alone because Jesus meets us in the wilderness of Lent. He is there in every single one of our temptations. And he is there relying not on his divine strength here, but on the strength of what human nature is capable of when inspired by divine grace. At any one of these temptations, he could have just whisked the devil away. This is God himself. He could have made the devil cease to exist, but instead, he only used his human nature. He only used those same weapons that we have in this same battle. He turned to Scripture and he said, instead of like the woman did in the garden, I'm not going to just try and think, what was it that God said again? No, I'm going to go straight to the source. I'm going to let my responses be guided by Scripture, by what my Heavenly Father has already revealed to his people. I'm going to call upon him rather than relying on my own resources. And I'm going to get through this because I know that he has made human nature capable of conquering the devil if only it relies on divine grace. And so we go into the wilderness together. But we know that that's where we meet Jesus Christ. We participate in this battle for our souls. And in it we rely not just on our own strengths, but on what the Lord reveals to us in Scripture and in the teachings of the Holy Catholic Church. We do battle with this same serpent, but we know that this serpent has already been defeated. And so in our temptations, we lay claim to the victory of Christ. We enter into this Christian battle for our souls this Lent, and we do so with great confidence, because Christ has already conquered, and if we cling to him, we will conquer too.